0: We're going to start with prayer this morning, and uh, I want to ask you to do something, if you would. If you are crossways with a brother or sister, family member, friend, neighbor, I ask you to, um, while we pray in the next couple of minutes, to offer that up to the Lord. And uh, also even offer that maybe in the next few minutes, as we unpack the word, that maybe your first priority should be to try and contact that person. We've got a phone in the hallway out there. Um, I don't know, depending on the gravity of it and the uh, depth of it, maybe you shouldn't be here. Maybe you should be there reconciling with them and then be here next or this Wednesday or this next Sunday morning. Um, The Word tells us that whenever we are crossways with a brother that it impacts our worship. And um, so I encourage you in the next couple minutes to, um, if you don't feel like you can step out right now, but you feel like you need to reconcile with a spouse, man, the devil's busy on Sunday morning, isn't he? I mean, how many of you ever have arguments or anything like that on Sunday morning? Like, man, we can't go to church. We just had an argument. And uh, the devil's just busy. And I encourage you in the next couple minutes, maybe grab your wife's hand or grab your husband's hand. And as we pray together, just uh, whisper in their ear that you're sorry because it matters and it gets in the way of worship if we don't stay reconciled with our brother. We're going to pray for Aldersgate Church this morning and uh, Chuck Ballard. Just pray that their worship is, um, is authentic and genuine, that they're truly engaging the Lord and engaging each other. We're also going to pray for Keith McCord. He's got a, uh, some of you know Keith. He is a young man in our uh, body that has uh, been diagnosed with cancer and a recurrent, Case of it, and he's being treated right now, and looks like he's responding positively to treatment, and that's that's exciting. But uh, pray for Keith and and his wife Stephanie and their little little man, a couple months old, Lincoln. So, let's uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I want to just offer up in the next few minutes just a time of uh, just quiet. And I uh, just pray that you will still our hearts, that if there's anything we need to confess to you, any sin that's in, in between uh, worshiping this morning, in between us and you, or between us and a brother, that you will call that to mind and call that to attention, and that we can get, out, out, get that out of the way before we engage you in the next few minutes. I want to also pray this morning, I want to ask that you will be large and um, engaging in corporate worship at Aldersgate this morning, Lord. We pray that that body will be satisfied with Christ, that they will enjoy community and they will enjoy the cross and the finished work of Christ, that they will respond appropriately uh, with their lives offered. Pray for Chuck as maybe he's even preaching at this very moment, Lord. I pray that he has had a sweet encounter with you this week. And that spills over into the time of the word. And Lord, we pray that we can have a true partnership with Aldersgate and a true relationship that's not one of competition, It's not one of enjoying hearing about challenges within a church, but was one of encouragement, prayer, and support, friendship, with a shared Lord, a shared cross, and a shared empty tomb, and a shared commission. Lord, we pray that by the work of the Spirit that the many churches in this community will truly be partners and truly be on the same sheet of music. Lord, we know we can't do that. There's no scheme, there's no plan, there's no program, there's no uh, procedure. It just takes a sweet work of the Holy Spirit, and we're begging for that. Lord, also, we want to just thank you so much for the work that you're doing in Keith and Stephanie's life. We recognize that what they're dealing with is not by accident, and that you're no less on your throne as they're engaging this uh, cancer and dealing with it. Lord, we recognize that you designed sickness for your glory and we confess to you that you are being glorified by the way you are operating in their lives. Lord, we thank you so much for his response to treatment and we pray that uh, the treatment that's in his system, in his body right now, that you will use that, that you will heal him and those tumors will be uh, reduced and ultimately eradicated. Lord, we thank you for medicine, and we don't give it the glory. We give you the glory because we recognize it's all from you. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that the 10,000 charms that captivate us all week long, and even maybe at this very moment, that you will remove those, and you'll give us a special sensitivity and special availability to the Holy Spirit. Lord, get us out of the way. Show us what grace means. Christ's precious name, we pray. Amen. Um, my goal this morning <clears throat> is twofold. I have either two goals or one goal with part A and B. I don't know which it is. But my goal is that we would understand our guilt more and that we would better appreciate and understand God's grace more. The two of those go hand in hand. That's my prayer, that's my goal, my burden this morning. I'm going to begin with a definition of grace from J.I. Packer from the book Knowing God. I, I'll, I'll encourage you that if you're looking for some reading in addition to the Bible, a book like that is worthwhile. Um, I just encourage that book over your best life now, our 40 days of purpose and you know, I'm not going to discount those because I know that God uses less than ideal things all the time. I feel like I embody that. <laughs> so I'm not cutting that down. I'm just saying, I mean, you want to di- uh, dig into a book that will change you. Dig into a book like that. Here's a, he has a chapter on grace. Here's how he defines grace. Love freely shown toward guilty sinners. Contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their merit. That's rich. Love freely shown toward guilty sinners. Contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their merit. Turn to John chapter 11. Page 898 of your pew Bible, that is. Or ESV. If you have the ESV, that would work also unless you have an ESV with references. Most of the English Standard versions, that page number works. If you don't have the ESV, you're on your own. You can use the table of contents. Uh, Don't be ashamed to do that. I, I use that sometimes, believe it or not. It's handy. That's why it's there. John chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, that blue one in front of you is now yours. So take that one. We've got more. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. King James Version says, surely he stinketh, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. His face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. There's no imagery in the book of John that is not important. and This imagery in this picture of Lazarus being called forth from the tomb, having been dead four days, is important. Every piece of this story, every piece of his other signs that he conveys, are for a purpose. He's written this book so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. That's why the book of John was written. That's why he shared these seven signs. This is one of these signs or one of these miracles where he calls forth Lazarus. Every piece of the story matters. Here in John chapter 11, he calls forth a man dead four days who is so beautiful that he introduces this and even reminds us that someone dead four days who's not been embalmed. They didn't embalm in those times, or at least in Israel they didn't that they would stink. They would reek. Four days dead was considered completely dead. In some way, I guess before that, if it was less than four days, they thought that you just kind of did. And they might be revived. I don't know how that happens sometimes. But in this case, when you're four days dead, you are gone. Lazarus's deadness, his decomposition and resultant stench, and his utter and complete inability to remedy that. Think about that. His utter and complete inability to do anything about his stench, his deadness, are a picture of us apart from and before Christ. It's Awesome. Awesome. That's where we've been the last few weeks. We're going to be there the next three or four weeks. I, I don't know. It's just so rich when we consider this imagery. Specifically, I want to focus in on the stench though. No. As we consider, do we really stink? We've asked the question in the last few weeks. Do we really stink? And we've begun to answer it. We've developed an answer over the last few weeks. We're going to develop the answer even a little bit more this morning. Here are a few things that we've eaten the last few weeks. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like uh, one who is unclean, and all our deeds are like filthy garments, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities Like the wind, take us away. We've eaten that. We've also eaten Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand? Psalm 51, 5 is another one we've eaten from David. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Today we're going to offer... Some new evidence for our stench and decomposition. That's a small sampling. If I were to recapture all that we've gathered the last few weeks, we would be here for a long time, although I would enjoy that. You you may not. The child care workers may want to choke me. But let's go to Romans chapter 5. New evidence for our stench and decomposition. I'm going to introduce a concept to you, a truth to you that may be new. It's a picture of corporate guilt. It's on page 942 of your Pew Bible, R-E-S-B. Romans chapter 5. It's a book, or excuse me, this chapter in the book of Romans is explaining what Christ achieved. What happened in the work of Christ. Here's a small sampling. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still helpless, you can almost import... Lazarus in there, while we were dead in our tombs, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, occupying a tomb with Lazarus, Christ died for us. Look over the next uh, page, or, well, my Bible, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's what the first few verses are about. What's been lost and what's been achieved in Christ. Now, starting in verse 12, we're introduced to a contrast between two people. A contrast between a guy named Adam. If you've read the first part of your Bible, you know who that is. Adam and Eve in the garden. And Christ, who's offered and presented as the new Adam. He's a type of Adam, and in some ways he will replace Adam. Adam for some. Look in verse 12. Now remember, this is new evidence for our stench and decomposition. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The fact that Lazarus's tomb was occupied was not because it just happenstance, because we all die. He wasn't old. And we get the sense, even in this case, that he wasn't even that old. That he may have died prematurely. The fact that he occupied a tomb was for one reason. It wasn't because he was sick. It was because he was a sinner. That's why he died. The fact and the assurance that we will die too if the Lord doesn't come back first is why? It's because we are sinners too. Make a straight connection between death and sin. Don't blame it on sickness. Don't blame it on other things. Don't blame it on tragedy. Don't blame it on accident. Blame it on the thing that's responsible for death is sin. All have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. So all die. Now, if you're listening... If you listen close to the last phrase in there, all die because all sin, you may imagine that as an explanation or uh, evidence for individual guilt. It is that. All die because all sin. You're guilty. I'm guilty. Everybody that you're sitting around is all guilty. We're all guilty. Now, here's where I want to introduce a new picture of guilt. Look in verse 18 of that same chapter, chapter 5. So then, as through one transgression, you can import Adam's sin in there, there resulted condemnation to all men. The one transgression, which was Adam and Eve in the garden, came, resulted from a simple command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. And a simple disobedience where the serpent entices Eve and Eve takes of the fruit and she eats some of it, and she turns to Adam, and Adam takes some of it. And that's where sin came from. A direct command, a clearly communicated command, and a clear and obvious transgression where they ate of the fruit where he told them not to eat of it. And the result of this condemnation, or the result of this, was condemnation to all men. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, it says, From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. Adam. Now, if we were to only consider the individual guilt that we've examined so far, we might think, okay, Adam's going to die. And Eve, too. She ate some of the fruit, too. But Adam and Eve are going to die. But what about the rest of us? Why on earth are we all going to die because of what Adam and Eve did? Lazarus is guilty, not only because of his own sin. Lazarus is dead, and occupying a tomb, not only because of his own sin, But he is corporately guilty in Adam. He's guilty with Adam because he sins like Adam or he sinned like Adam. But he's guilty in Adam. You understand the difference? Here's evidence. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. For through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Through one man's disobedience, the many, that's you and me, were made sinners. Adam has actually been referred to as our federal head. He's like our daddy. He's our sin daddy. And we're all related to him. And even if we don't like it, he's our daddy. And we're stuck with him. He is our federal head, and his sin meant our guilt. I want to encourage you at this moment if this kind of seems awkward or seems like this just doesn't fit like this doesn't work i want to encourage you don't embrace forgiveness at the hands and work of another meaning christ without recognizing guilt at the hands of another a man named adam just as we are forgiven in the work of christ that we didn't do we are guilty in the work of adam that we may not have done i don't need adam to be guilty But if for some reason I hadn't sinned, I'm still guilty in Adam. Not only am I individually guilty, I'm corporately guilty. I'm guilty with Adam. All die because all sin. And I'm guilty in Adam. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's why David could proclaim in sin or in in iniquity, I I was born in sin, I was conceived. That's how he can claim that, because he's related to Adam, as are we. Now, turn to Joshua chapter 6, page 182 of your pew Bible. As you're turning there, I want to mention that I understand if this might seem a little foreign. I understand if corporate guilt in Adam and corporate consequence of death which is what Adam got, which is what we get to, might be a little bit unsavory to you. I understand that. We are very individualistic in our mindset. The way everything that's been been fed into us is about the individual. So we have a tough time with thoughts about corporate guilt and corporate punishment. You may even at first blush consider these Romans passages, ah, it's a little bit hard, you know. I, I didn't really understand that. I was kind of thinking about lunch. I'm going to kind of dismiss that. And I want to challenge you. I'm going to take you to an obvious example of God exercising corporate gut judgment on some who were corporately guilty and a very clear corporate consequence. It's a passage that I want to tell you, as a young man, I avoided because I couldn't understand it. And it was kind of scary. I thought, man, God had a bad day. If you've ever read this passage, you read it and go, Whoa, man, I'm glad I didn't live in Old Testament times because now we got the God of grace, you know, Abba Father. Well, he was different then. He's mad then. The reality is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, let's climb in to this story in Joshua. Beginning in Joshua chapter 6, I'm going to share with you the command for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is going into the promised land. They've been wandering around in the desert. Joshua's leading them into the promised land. And they're going to start taking out these cities one by one. They take out Jericho. They fit the battle of Jericho. As past tense of fought, I don't know how, but they fit the battle of Jericho. Okay? And in verse 18, this is what God tells the nation of Israel But as for you, Israel, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban. It's also referred to as the devoted things. You're going to find out what those are in a minute. So that you you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make a camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. These are the devoted things. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go in the treasury of the Lord. They're devoted to the Lord. Don't take them for yourselves nation of israel that's the command don't eat from that one tree in the garden adam be sure you tell eve you can eat from any you want but don't take don't eat from that tree and don't take the devoted things okay that's the command turn over to chapter 7 verse 15 here's the consequence of breaking that command for israel chapter 7 verse 15 It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Whoa. So the command is don't take any of the devoted things when you go into these other cities. And the consequence is if you do, then you die. That's pretty heavy. Okay, let's see what happens. Chapter 7, the beginning, verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, look down a couple lines, pass all the hard names, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel." We've heard the command. We've heard the consequence. And now we're hearing exactly what happened. A guy named Achan took some of these devoted things for himself. And now the whole nation of Israel is guilty. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. Wait a second. That must be a misprint. It was just Achan. No, the sons of Israel, the whole nation of Israel is guilty. And here's how it manifests itself. They're going off to their second city in the promised land. They fit the battle of Jericho. And now they're gonna go fit the battle of AI. AI's a little bitty old town. They spent, sent some spies out there and they came back and said, Oh man, AI's a joke, you know, little old bitty town. You're not gonna need many people to fight AI. So Joshua says, okay, sends off a little small crew to AI. They get their behinds handed to them. They get routed, and actually 36 of them fall and die. A.I. whips them. That's the consequence of this. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully and the Lord's anger burned against the sons of Israel. And so far we see 36 that I would call innocent dead as a result of Achan's sin. Corporate consequence. Now, turn over to chapter 7, verse 20. Actually, verse 19. Chapter 7, verse 19, we're going to understand specifically what happened to Achan. We've already seen what in the eyes of, worldly eyes, we might say is an injustice. Wait a second. Achan took the devoted things. Why did these 36 soldiers die? Because of something that Achan did. Let's see what else happens. In verse 19 of chapter 7, Joshua is marching all these clans out in front of him, clan by clan, he's questioning them. He's going to find out who took the devoted things. Verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them, and behold... They're concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. You know, Joshua, they were so shiny and so pretty. I mean, you know, it was kind of a suggestion, wasn't it? So I took some of those things and I, I went to my tent and I dug a big old hole. And I put them in there because, boy, they sure so shiny. I, I was so excited about having them. In verse 24, this is what Joshua and Israel do. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold. That's appropriate so far, isn't it? Achan's the guy that took this stuff. Thirty-six guys have died as a result of his sin. That's appropriate. Come here, Achan. Grab your gold, grab your silver, grab your mantle. We're going to come out here and we're going to punish you. It's appropriate up to there in the, world's, in the eyes of the world, isn't it? But let's go on. Get the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, his Volvo, and all that belonged to him. Get the family car, lad. Get it all out here, Aiken. Let's go out there. Get your family, get your sons, your daughters, your donkey, your sheep your livestock, and they brought them up to the valley of Achar. Maybe did. just going to have them being spectators in what's about to happen to Achan, right? Let's hope so. Verse 25, Joshua says, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over Achan and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkey and his sheep and the silver and the gold and the mantle and his Volvo. They raised over him a big old pile of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. That's pretty aggressive handling of a few devoted things. Wouldn't you say? It's a clear picture of two things. Corporate guilt. Not just Achan, but the whole nation of Israel. The sons of, of, of Israel were guilty together for the sin of one man. They're all guilty. Not just Achan, but the whole family are guilty. And then there's corporate Consequence, And that corporate consequence is death. Not just Achan, but 36 of those sons of Israel. And Achan and his sons and his daughters and his livestock and his sheep and everything that he owned all die. Man, if you're like me, you're reading this and you're hearing this. If you take the full weight of this and you let it hit you, you're going, man, this punishment seems extreme. I mean... Really, let's be honest. I mean, just a few devoted things. Come on, it, it seems excessive. It's hard for us to stomach these sort of transgressions. A piece of fruit where all humanity is going to be guilty. Some devoted things where a whole nation of Israel is going to be guilty. Man. Remember I told you that one of my goals, as two-part goal or two goals, I don't know which it is, but the first one of the two was that we have a better appreciation for our guilt. Here's where I'm going with the first part of this message. It's easy for us to minimize these things because our hearts are more deceitful than anything. They are deceitful, more deceitful than all else, and they are desperately sick. That's why it's easy to look at those things and go... Ooh, that's kind of hard because we're looking at it with human, sinful, fallen eyes. The only way we can see that eating a piece of fruit when God says don't deserves death for humanity. The only way that we can see that taking devoted things deserves 36 dead, the stoning of Achan and his sons and his daughters and his livestock and his sheep and a family car is to realize that we're not judged on our standards but on his standards of holiness. That's how we're judged if we can take our human eyes out of the picture and look through the eyes of this word at what holiness is, then we go, whoa, this changes everything. Then I'm beginning to tremble before a holy God. Then I'm beginning to do like Isaiah that got up next to God and saw God and said, oh, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's what happens when we begin to see truth, holiness and understand that we are measured by His standards. That better cause us to tremble. That's where the fear of the Lord comes from. Before a holy God, we are guilty. Individually, and if that's not enough, corporately. Last couple of weeks, we've considered some observations on the formerly smelly. If we climb into this context or this picture, this story of Lazarus being called forth from the tomb and we can imagine that we're hopefully we're in fellowship with the Lord right now and if you're not this listen close if you are listen close too but observations of those who've been called forth from our tombs been come forth the day it was 6 years old for me if we've been called forth from a tomb here's some observations of the formerly smelly who now are the sweet aroma of Christ to God who used to stink with Lazarus Here's some observations that we've encountered the last few weeks. The first two that we encountered a couple weeks ago is that we are students of the stench of our tombs. We still live kind of close to that tomb. We still have a sin nature, and we still wrestle with our humanity. And we also encounter this word every day that's a mirror that shows us our stench. And then we also consider the singular reason why we don't stink any longer. The formerly smelly recognize the singular reason that they don't stink any more, longer. Not because of anything in them, but because of Christ crucified and risen, period. The third thing that we considered last week was an observation of the formerly smelly that they worship with their lives. They don't dabble in church, they don't do church. They are the church. They don't go through the motions. Because the only appropriate response to a cross is your completely surrendered life. So those who are formerly smelly worship with their lives. And the fourth thing, they worshiped out of a pierced, horse-trodden heart. If you weren't here the last few weeks, I beg you, beg you to encounter those messages and see what they do to you pierced. We got that last week from Acts chapter 2 where Peter is preaching at Pentecost and he tells these guys, he's preaching to them, he said, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then the next verse, it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. It broke their heart. That's where worship comes from. A pierced broken heart. Today, we're going to consider a single observation of the formerly smelly. They are surprised by grace. They are surprised by grace. If you appreciate the concept of corporate guilt, and I don't mean appreciate it like you like it. I mean appreciate it like you see it. Like you see the sin of Adam And you realize that we're guilty with him. If you appreciate the concept of corporate guilt, you see yourself in league and connected to and related to Adam. He's your daddy and mine. If you appreciate the concept of corporate guilt, you see yourself also in league with Achan. As I saw him with the devoted things, I I thought, that's me. You see yourself in league with Achan. And then you also see what we've seen the last few weeks, that we're in league with Lazarus. You realize that the fruit that Eve picked that day in the garden was our fruit. You realize that she took a bite and she chewed it and she swallowed it and she passed it to Adam and he gnawed off a bite of it and swallowed. We bit and chewed and swallowed it too. We're guilty because of Adam. And if you get up next to the law, you'll find out that you're guilty with Adam. We're guilty with him and we're guilty in him. I don't need him to be guilty, but I am. And I live in Achan's tent with him. I helped him scrape the dirt away. I grabbed the silver. And I also live in Lazarus's tomb with him on the stone slab right next to him. But then there's Christ. If I, I didn't title this message this, but if I could sum it up in four words, it would be that. But then there's Christ. He became the new Adam because he became our Achan. He became our Lazarus. It's like he had the Aiken family. If you could take import Christ into that story about Aiken, it's like he walked up to Aiken and his family and he said, Hey, Aiken, go stand over there. Get your sons and your daughters and your donkey and your sheep and your oxen and your Volvo and get them all out of the way. I'm going to stand right there. I'm going to take those rocks that were due for you. And you know, here's the funny thing. I'm going to let you watch. And here's what's even worse. I'm going to let you pick up some stones too. I'm going to let you throw them too. Last week we looked in Acts, and there's four or five passages in Acts where Peter's preaching. And it's like a theme for him. Jesus whom you crucified. When he's preaching to him, that's a theme. Jesus whom you crucified. And then in 1 Peter he says, his, our sins He bore on the cross. By His wounds, we are healed. We picked up the stones. We watched Him take our place. He called Lazarus out of the tomb so that he could move into a tomb while we watched. Public trials Public beatings and a public humiliating crucifixion while we watched. While we called from the crowd, Give us Barabbas. It's like he said, Not only am I sparing you, Ben, Achan, but I'm going to take your place. That's grace. I'm going to ask you right now, does that surprise you? Does that shock you? Does that seem radical to you? Does that seem scandalous and really unbelievable? Does it leave you astonished, amazed, and astounded? Are you flabbergasted? if you are i'll offer to you now you get somewhere now we're being surprised by grace but for Christ we would experience the full weight of God's wrath exactly what we deserve i shared a story a couple months ago uh, about my daughter a conversation with my daughter It was probably three months ago now. I've shared this illustration with you before. Until I identify a better illustration, you may hear it again even after this. Uh, She's asking me, she said, Daddy, why did God allow sin in the garden? Why did he let us sin so that we could die in the first place? Is that a good question? I mean, she's eight. I figured, man, that's a really good question. And... Thankfully, the Lord gave me an illustration. And I'll share this illustration with you right now. I asked her, I I kind of developed this. I said, Evan, I want you to imagine that you're going across the street to the Roddins. Ken and Don Rodden live right across the street. And they have kids our age, so our kids play together. So it's easy for her to envision that. So she can envision that. She's crossing the street. And I said, Evan, now imagine you get halfway across the street. And your feet get stuck in the concrete. You look down, and up to your ankles, you're in concrete, and you can't move. You're stuck. And then, Evan, I said, imagine that you look up, and this would be unusual on Woodland Drive, the back of Oak Creek Estates, but you look up, and you see a Mack truck bearing down on you. An 18-wheeler. He got all 18 wheels. He got a heavy load. He's uh, like Smokey and the Bandit. I mean, coming on strong, locked and loaded. He's coming on strong, and you're stuck in the middle of the street. And she's, you can just see her taking this on. You know, she's envisioning this. I said, and imagine, just before that bumper and that grill of that big scary 18-wheeler gets you, someone comes up behind you and swoops you up out of the street. some way, they wrestle you free of that concrete, and they pick you up, and they put you over in the Rodden's yard, set you down safe and sound, and then they bear... The full weight of that 18-wheeler, that bumper, that grill, grill marks all over. I said, okay, Evan, let me explain this to you. If that trip across the street is your life, what is that that made you stuck in the middle of the street, literally enslaved to the street? And she said, sin. I had to develop that a little bit. All right, I promise. She's not that sharp. She's sharp. (laughs) She said, sin, and then she's catching on. But then I said, okay, all right, good. Now, who's the Mack truck? And she said, uh, the devil? I said, no, ma'am. That Mack truck is a holy God that is just and that is righteous in destroying you for your sin. And then I said, okay. And she kind of has this look like, ooh. And I said, okay, who was that that swooped you up and picked you out of the street? She said, that was Jesus. I said, exactly right, babe. That's grace. That's grace. We're saved by God from God. By grace, our judge becomes our Savior. That's grace. Grace is Jesus saying, come here, Achan, move out of the way. I'm going to take your place. Grace is Jesus saying, come forth, Lazarus, move out of the way. I'll die so that you may live. Without Adam and Achan and Lazarus and sin and a garden and a half-eaten piece of fruit and a smelly occupied tomb and the Mack truck, Jesus wouldn't be our hero. He wouldn't be our Savior. We wouldn't need a Savior without all that. He wouldn't captivate us we wouldn't need to desperately cling to him for our very hope. We needed all that as a backdrop to see and appreciate grace. Without an appreciation for our guilt, both individual and corporate, and the terrible consequences of that guilt, in the stench of our cold tomb, Christ might be reduced to someone we dabble in. And the bride that he came and died for, the church, might be something that we go do. It might be like a club that we're a member of, but we don't engage. It might be reduced to a place that we go, rather than a people that we are, that are being rested by grace. Grace is invisible without the backdrop of Adam and Achan and Lazarus and wrath and judgment. And law. And teachers and each of us that were in school, you remember those teachers that had the transparencies, and they're holding up the transparency, and you're like, "What's on that? I can't see it until they put it on the transparent machine, on the machine, and it, it shows up or until they hold it up next to a wall. And then this image emerges. That's what grace is like. We can't see it without that backdrop behind it. It's just a transparency that we can't capture, but with the backdrop of Adam. Achan, Lazarus, wrath, judgment, law. Then we see grace and appreciate it. Without those things that seem so terrible, we're left with a gift of Christ that we don't know how to appreciate. We don't know what we've been saved from. Without a taste of the consequences of death, we have no appreciation for riches in life and grace without seeing the Mack truck of God's wrath bearing down on you, you won't appreciate God's grace and the person of Christ sweeping you up and pushing you out of the way and taking your place. I'll offer my definition of grace based on this developing study, the He Stinketh series. How I would define grace is this way. That God purchased the worthless with the priceless. That's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we don't understand it, but we're thankful for it. As we engage these truths about grace and about our guilt, both individual and corporate. Lord, we are are left hopeless and helpless, but then when we consider but for Christ, we cling to Him and we cling to Him desperately. Lord, I pray that our religion and our church and everything that we are, our parenting, our husbanding and wiving and all these things, that those will be encompassed in that truth but for Christ, that he's our everything. Lord, I pray that life, the 10,000 charms that captivate us, will all fall away, and that will become enough, but for Christ. Lord, we confess that that has got to be a divine work. We are so clouded in what we see. We are so contaminated with sin. By grace, Lord, we pray that this word will find purchase in us, And that it will change us. And that we grow more and more satisfied with Christ. More captivated with Christ. More surprised by grace every day. We beg for that, Lord. We beg for it. In Christ's perfect, precious, priceless name. Amen.